Come now to the reading of God's Word. Our New Testament reading this morning is from Philippians, a book that uh, Paul wrote from Chains. Chapter 1 tells us, as a prisoner of the gospel, he speaks um, at the end of chapter 1 about suffering for Christ's sake. And in chapter 2, he says that he is being poured out as a drink offering. He points the Philippians to Christ's ultimate example of suffering, then also his own, that of other men like Epaphroditus, says in chapter 3, verse 10, that he seeks to know Christ and the fellowship of his suffering and be conformed to him in his death. So that's the, the context in the first three chapters of what we read now, beginning at chapter 3, verse 17, where the apostle says, brethren, join in following my example, and note those who so walk, as you have us for a pattern. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Paul is calling the Philippian believers to imitate him and the other men like uh, Timothy and Epaphroditus as they imitate Christ in the way of suffering or the way of the cross. And yet at the same time, uh, Paul weeps over those who are enemies of the cross, those who reject a life of cruciform or a cross-shaped service and instead set their minds on earthly things and on pleasure and glory. These, he says, are enemies of the cross. Luther would have said that these men advocate for a theology of glory instead of a theology of the cross. They advocate for a shape of the Christian life that leads to prosperity and triumph as opposed to what Luther called a theology of the cross. And it is these two competing ideologies that Paul mentions in Philippians chapter 3 that we have in seed form in the book of Job. Job has been suffering for Christ's sake. He has um, even spoken of the Christ to come, but his friends reject his theology of the cross, this idea of undeserved suffering, opting instead for a theology of glory. That's what we see especially in Job chapter 15 which we read now, the second speech of Eliphaz the Tamanite, Job 15, we'll read beginning at verse 1. Then Eliphaz the Tamanite answered and said, Should a wise man answer with empty knowledge and fill himself with the east wind? Should he reason with unprofitable talk or by speeches with which he can do no good? Yes, you cast off fear and restrain prayer before God. For your iniquity teaches your mouth and you choose the tongue of the crafty. Your own mouth condemns you and not I. Yes, your own lips testify against you. 
Are you the first man who was born? Or were you made before the hills? Have you heard the counsel of God? Do you limit wisdom to yourself? What do you know that we do not know? What do you understand that is not in us? Both the gray-haired and the aged are among us, much older than your father. Are the consolations of God too small for you? And the words spoken gently with you. Why does your heart carry you away? And what do your eyes wink at that you turn your spirit against God and let such words go out of your mouth? What is man that he could be pure and he who was born of a woman that he could be righteous? If God puts no trust in his saints and the heavens are not pure in his sight, how much less man who is abominable and filthy, who drinks iniquity like water? I will tell you, Hear me, what I have seen, I will declare what wise men have told, not hiding anything received from their fathers to whom alone the land was given and no alien passed among them. The wicked man writhes with pain all his days. And the number of years is hidden from the oppressor. Dreadful sounds are in his ears. In prosperity, the destroyer comes upon him. He does not believe that he will return from darkness, for a sword is waiting for him. He wanders about for bread, saying, where is it? He knows that a day of darkness is ready at his hand. Trouble and anguish make him afraid. They overpower him like a king ready for battle. For he stretches out his hand against God and acts defiantly against the Almighty, running stubbornly against him with his strong embossed shield. Though he has covered his face with his fatness and made his waist heavy with fat, he dwells in desolate cities and houses which no one inhabits, which are destined to become ruins. He will not be rich, nor will his wealth continue, nor will his possessions overspread the earth. He will not depart from darkness. The flame will dry out his branches, and by the breath of his mouth he will go away. Let him not trust in futile things, deceiving himself, for futility will be his reward. It will be accomplished before his time, and his branch will not be green. He will shake off his unripe grape like a vine and cast off his blossom like an olive tree, for the company of hypocrites will be barren, and fire will consume the tents of bribery. They conceive trouble and bring forth futility. Their womb Prepares deceit. Irrigation for those of you who have not been with us or have forgotten some of what we've looked at so far in Job. We've been making the case that Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 is really the lens through which we're to view this whole drama. Genesis 3.15 is, is where God says that one born of a woman will crush the head of the serpent and bring salvation. That's the first revelation of the gospel, which God will later proclaim through the patriarchs and prophets and foreshadow throughout the rest of the Old Testament. Little, little types and shadows, little previews of what Christ is going to do. And the book of Job is one of the earliest of those shadows where we see in the beginning, in the prologue in chapters 1 and 2, this conflict between God and Satan that is centered on the fate 
of a single individual, a single man whose life will follow a pattern of glory, suffering, and then greater glory. The same pattern as the one who would leave heaven to suffer and then be exalted, and in so doing, silence the accuser and crush him under his feet. In the story of Job, we see a little preview, a little shadow of the greatest story, of a righteous and blameless man who suffers, though not for his own sin, but for God's glorious redemptive purposes. But just as when Christ comes and the world does not have eyes to see what God is doing in the suffering of this righteous man, so it is with Job. As his friends, the religious elite of his day, come to console him, but only end up accusing him, numbering him with sinners, just like the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, was numbered with transgressors. And so Job, like Christ, will look for comforters, but find none, as these enemies of the cross are angered by the suggestion that a righteous man could perish. You might remember the first time we met Eliphaz, uh, back in chapter 4, he asked in 4 verse 7, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the upright ever cut off? And the implied answer is uh, nowhere, never. But Job has been making the case that he is righteous, that he is innocent, and that God may have some wise plan in what he is doing other than simply punishing him for sin. In other words, Job has been making the case for the possibility of the suffering of the righteous. Job has been advocating for a theology of the cross. And as he's been doing this, prophetically depicting the fate of Christ in his own life and circumstances, Job has also been prophetically proclaiming Christ in his longing. As he longs in chapter 9 for a mediator who would come and lay his hand on both God in heaven and on Job as well, having affinity with both of them and making a way for peace between them. In chapter 14, last week, he speaks of, of resurrection, where on the other side of death, those like him who, who um, suffer in this life and yet confess, though he slay me, I will trust in him, will be received into glory, and God will desire them and put away their sin. This is what Job has been saying. So now Eliphaz, in a much angrier tone than he had in chapter 4, comes in and and insults Job right off the bat. Instead of beginning with pleasantries and the sort of compliments that he did in the first few verses of chapter 4, Eliphaz begins with a rather crude insult in verse 2 of chapter 15, where he says that Job has filled his belly with the east wind. He's essentially saying that all of Job's words are nothing but a loud belch, unbecoming and unprofitable. That his theology of the cross is despicable. And after his opening insult, Eliphaz then goes on to articulate why he rejects Job's theology of the cross and why he rejects the man of the cross. Those are our two points this morning. Eliphaz rejects a theology of the cross, and Eliphaz rejects 
the man of the cross, as the hostility of Eliphaz and his friends to the message of Job's innocent suffering anticipates the hostility of the world and even religious elite to the gospel message of the cross. As Paul says, and as we heard already in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it becomes a stumbling block to the Jew and folly to the Greek. So look with me at uh, first Eliphaz's rejection of a theology of the cross. We see this in the first half of the chapter where he rejects it for two reasons. In verses 1 to 6, because he thinks that it undermines true piety. In verses 7 to 13, because he thinks that it undermines tradition. Notice in verse 3, Eliphaz calls Job's talk unprofitable. He says, should, should you reason with unprofitable talk? And he says at the end of the verse that it does no good. It's even implied but what he says in verse 2, as the, the east wind is the wind that comes off of the desert and brings no rain. It is not fruitful. It, it does no good. That's what Eliphaz is saying about Job's theology of undeserved suffering. It is useless and unprofitable. In fact, in verse 4, he even says that it casts off the fear of God and restrains prayer. Or in other translations like the NIV, it says it undermines piety and hinders devotion. Eliphaz is saying, Job, if everything that you've been saying is true... If the Christian life, obviously we're speaking anachronistically, if, if the life of, of following God is, is not necessarily about God giving me prosperity for my service, not necessarily about God giving me health, wealth, and prosperity, but as you say, is, is shaped like a cross, then you realize that's going to cause everyone to cast off their fear of him and stop praying. He's saying, Job, you are, you are destroying true spirituality. If everyone buys into this theology of the cross that you're selling, that discipleship is cross-shaped and not crown-shaped, then people are going to stop praying and stop worshiping. You are undermining piety. You are hindering devotion by the way that you speak. Notice Eliphaz's assumption is that people only worship God for what they get from him. That if, uh, they, if this really is a world in which religious devotion does not equate to material blessing immediately, then there is no point. It seems that maybe Eliphaz would not have done so well with Satan's test. Remember in those opening chapters, Satan said that Job only serves God because of what he gets from him. Satan says that the only reason to serve God is material blessing, which is essentially what Eliphaz is saying here, that God is not worth loving for his own sake, but the purpose of piety and devotion are his gifts. Eliphaz is propounding a theology of glory and prosperity, and a theology of the cross, like Job has been suggesting, terrifies him. And so he tries to smear Job, saying in verse 5, iniquity teaches your mouth. It's your own sin that's causing you to create this system where you make up this idea of undeserved suffering. He says, you choose the tongue of the crafty. 
In other words, you side with the serpent, who in Genesis 3 verse 1 is spoken of as being crafty or or cunning. You side with the serpent over against the true religion that we know to be right. Somewhat ironic that he uses this language from Genesis 3 to identify Job with the serpent, while he actually is himself voicing Satan's very argument. But he doesn't see that, and so he says, Job, your own lips testify against you. You have undermined piety, and you have cast off devotion to God. Eliphaz believes a theology of the cross, the theology of Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He believes that kind of theology is bankrupt. That it, is, in fact, is worse than bankrupt, but undermines the necessary incentives for true piety. That Job's theology of delayed glory and undeserved suffering in this life is deadly. Because it will cause people not to follow God. This is Eliphaz's theology of glory. And it's why he hates Job's theology of the cross. Because in his system, he he doesn't love God for his own sake outside of the rewards that Eliphaz gets from him. Again, we have to ask ourselves, as we listen to Eliphaz critiquing Job's theology of the cross, we have to ask ourselves, do we identify more with Eliphaz or with Job? Would we prefer a theology of glory and prosperity or a theology of the cross? What do you ultimately value? Boys and girls, do you follow Jesus because of what you hope to get from him? Or do you follow Jesus because you love him? Moms and dads, do you seek to get your children to follow him with the promise of earthly reward or with the promise of God himself? Or for those among us who are going through trials, do we love Christ enough to serve him, um, even if it feels like we might get nothing out of it in this life? Do we love him enough to say with Luther, as we sang a moment ago, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. Job's and Luther's theology of the cross is teaching us to say that. That it actually doesn't undermine piety and devotion, but uncovers true devotion. And so Eliphaz's first uh, reason for rejecting a theology of the cross holds no weight. But then he offers a second reason. Second reason for rejecting Job's theology of undeserved suffering is because it undermines tradition. Because it goes against the system that he and his friends know to be true. They've already mentioned this uh, back at the end of chapter 5 when Eliphaz says, I think it's in uh, 5 verse 27, Behold, we have searched this out and it is true. Hear it and know for yourself. Or Bildad back in chapter 8 in verses 8 through 10 where he says, Inquire of bygone ages and consider the things that have been discovered by the fathers. They have been defending an age-old system that Job is a fool to go up against. Which is what Eliphaz says in verse 7. Job, are you the first man who was ever born? 
Were you there when God made the hills? Have you listened to the secret counsel of God? And do you, Job, have a monopoly on wisdom? What do you know that we don't? It says, look, the the gray-haired and the aged are among us, men who are older than your father, and you would question them? Are the comforts of God that we speak to you gently too small for you? Why are you turning your spirit against God by going against the system of our tradition? Eliphaz goes on in verses 17 to 19 to appeal again to what he has seen and heard from wise men who have received this wisdom from their fathers. He appeals to age and tradition and says anyone that goes against it is going against God. We see that from the way that he identifies their words with the words of God. Are the comforts or consolations of God that we speak to you gently too small for you? It says that anyone who goes against our system, our tradition, is going against God. And this is the same thing that will happen when Christ comes in the Gospels. Or when Paul preaches the same thing in the book of Acts, or Luther in the Reformation, or men like Whitfield or Wesley in the Great Awakening. The religious elite, those who uphold the, the, the system of their traditions, will say, by what authority do you teach these things? How can you go against the traditions that have been handed down to us? How can you question the system? Beloved, we see again that one of the clear applications of the book of Job is the possibility of a tradition being wrong. It's also one of the clear applications of the Gospels and of the Reformation and of the Great Awakening that we must not overvalue tradition or reject those who fall outside of it when they may in fact be calling us to conformity to the Word of God. Realize the very term reformed means reformed according to Scripture to be reshaped by the word of God and not human tradition or human wisdom, but the spirit of God as revealed in his word. But Eliphaz, like the Pharisees and like the Roman Catholics in the time of the Reformation and like traditionalists today, is so blind that he confuses their tradition for the words of God, verse 11 and verse 13, and slams Job for rejecting God's comforts. How dangerous it is when human traditions become so identified in our minds with God's word that we demonize those who don't hold or practice them. This is why it's so important to be people of the book, people of the word, constantly going back to it and comparing what we hear with what God has said so that we are people of the word and not people of human wisdom. This would have saved Eliphaz, this would have saved the Pharisees, this would have saved the Roman Catholic Church from rejecting a theology of the cross in favor of a theology of glory. But they were not listening to God's prophet, and so they mistook him for a fool. In fact, it's interesting, if you look at verse 8, where there's that little series of questions, you're the first man who was born, were you made before the hills? He asks in verse 8, have you heard the counsel of God. And that's actually language from the prophets, from places like Jeremiah chapter 23 to speak of how the prophets have access to God's divine counsel as they're given the very words of God to speak. And James chapter 5 says that Job is a prophet. 
That as he's been speaking of a mediator to come, as he's been speaking of resurrection glory and God putting away our sin and this cross-shaped life of suffering unto glory is in fact speaking prophetically. But Eliphaz rejects the counsel of God and mistakes God's prophet for a fool. Rejecting not only his theology of the cross, but rejecting the man of the cross which is what we see in the second half of of the chapter where Eliphaz uh, first tries to put Job in his place with the doctrine of total depravity in verse uh, 14 through 16. And that sort of accuses him in verse 16 of drinking injustice like water. He says, look, Job, the doctrine of original sin, the doctrine of total depravity, how dare you question God, and especially someone like you who drinks injustice like water and is abominable and filthy. And then he goes into a little parable in verses 20 to 35, which is based on the wisdom and tradition of the fathers. That's why in verses 17 to 19, he, he speaks of the wisdom of the fathers that has been revealed And from that comes this parable that he speaks in verses 20 to 35. That parable, as we read, is a parable of a wicked man who writhes in pain all his days. A man whose life is filled with great suffering. It says that he has dreadful sounds in his ears and in his prosperity... During a time when he was experiencing great glory and blessedness, the destroyer comes upon him. Wipes him out. And it says there is no return for him from darkness. Eliphaz says in this parable of the wicked man that trouble and anguish make him afraid. They overwhelm him. Though he once covered his face with fatness, now he dwells in desolate cities which no one inhabits in the ruins which he once knew. He is no longer rich, Eliphaz says, but is consigned to darkness and lives in barrenness. And fire has destroyed all that he has. That's the parable of the wicked man that Eliphaz provides for us in verses 20 to 35. Which you might have noticed has a number of strike, uh, striking parallels with Job's own experience. Uh, notice verse 20, just as it says that this man writhes in pain, Job has said that very thing of himself in chapter 6. Just as verse 21 said, that the destroyer will come upon him. That's the very thing that happened to Job in chapters 1 and 2. Just as it says that the sounds of dread are in his ears, chapter 3 says the same. Just as verse 22 says that this man is heading for a place of darkness from which there is no return, Job has spoken of darkness in each of his speeches and and said in chapter 7 that he is heading for that place of no return. The language of anguish and fear in verse 24 we find in chapter 7 that Job uses of his own experience. The image of fire in verse 30 and again in verse 34 harkens back to chapter 1 when the fire from heaven came down and burned up Job's sheep and Job's servants. All of these themes in this parable of the wicked man match the very experience of Job. They match his experience of dwelling in ruins and poverty, though once he was rich. What Eliphaz is doing is being a very cruel counselor and listening very closely to everything that Job has said, only to then throw it back in his face and see, say, Job, you're describing the fate of a wicked man. Verse 34, of a hypocrite. 
who's engaged in bribery and conceives trouble and prepares deceit. Verse 16, one who drinks injustice like water. That's what you've been describing, Job. And so by your own admission, you are a wicked man. What Eliphaz is doing is is he is taking his theology of glory, which sees all suffering as evidence of personal sin, assuming that theology of glory to be true because that's what tradition says. And then says, Job, that means you're wicked. It's circular reasoning. It's cruel reasoning. He despises the suffering one and in order to protect himself, heaps accusations upon him in order to distance himself from Job's fate. And we do this too. It feels safe to say, oh, their their suffering is only because of this and this and that bad choice they made and this and that. So I'm safe if I just avoid those things. You see, for Eliphaz, all of that rests on this assumption that Job's theology of undeserved suffering is wrong. But it's not. For Job, in his suffering, is revealing the way of the cross. In fact, you could take this very language uh, of, of this parable of the wicked man and apply it to Christ, who on the cross would writhe in pain. Verse 20, that's why the book of Hebrews speaks of him as, as crying out shrieks of anguish. Verse 21, with dreadful sounds in his ears. Christ, verse 22, would enter into darkness, the darkness of the cross for several hours. He would hunger. Verse 23, going 40 days and 40 nights without food on the cross, he would thirst. Trouble and anguish would make him afraid in Gethsemane. Verse 24, he would stretch out his hands to God. Verse 25, and say, why have you forsaken me? The dwelling outside the city that verse 28 speaks of, Christ would know as Hebrews 13 says he suffered outside the gate. Matthew chapter 8, he had no place to lay his head to rest. Christ would know the poverty of verse 29 as he became poor for our sake, 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. Eliphaz in rejecting the suffering one anticipates those who would pass by Christ on the cross and wag their heads at him, drawing conclusions about his character based on the cross on which he hung. Eliphaz rejects and despises the man of the cross. He is like those enemies of the cross in Philippians 3 who set their minds on earthly things. He's like the Jews who expected a triumphant king or like Peter who said in Matthew 16, the Christ shall not suffer. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Because to reject a theology of the cross is satanic. You're the voice of the serpent. These two competing ideologies in the book of Job could not be more opposite. One, a theology of glory straight from hell. One, a theology of the cross straight from heaven. And the book of Job is seeking to show us the bankruptcy of the one and the beauty of the other. Which teaches us to look heavenward where our citizenship is from which we eagerly await a savior who will transform our lowly bodies, our bodies of of suffering and tears into the likeness of his glorious body. 
But those who seek glory now, those who only follow God for what they might get from him, those who saw the cross Paul preached or the cross Luther preached as a stumbling block will not know that glory. Those who reject the folly of the cross in favor of the wisdom of this world will be exposed like Eliphaz in the end as fools. And their system as empty. And the book of Job is at pains to try to help us to see that. And to help us see that though the message of the cross... Though the message of the gospel that we proclaim in the midst of a world of darkness may make us objects of scorn, though the message of the cross may be seen as useless by the world around us and as undermining the world's system of morality, though it may offend as it does offend Eliphaz in verse 11, God in the end will vindicate his people under the shadow of the cross. Those who know Christ in the fellowship of his suffering in the midst of a world that sees the cross as a symbol of hatred and folly will be vindicated in the end. That's where the book of Job is heading in chapter 42. And so as we see this man Eliphaz representing the world's opposition to the the message of the cross, and as we see Job being beaten down by him, being beaten down by by the claims of human wisdom from the world and even the religious systems around us. And, And then as we look around us today and hear people saying that this same cross contradicts morality and is offensive, we look heavenward. We look heavenward with Job as he has been. We look heavenward with Paul in Philippians 3 and trust that those who know Christ in the fellowship of his suffering will know him in the power of his resurrection. That as you carry your cross and suffer, even becoming objects of scorn, vindication is coming. That's the message of the book of Job and the message that contradicts the so-called wisdom of Eliphaz. That if you were here this morning and, and you do not subscribe to this theology of the cross, you think that it's folly, you, you think that the message of a dying Savior and of a church who follows in his footsteps is folly. And I would plead with you to look ahead to the end of the book in chapter 42, verse 7, and see God put Eliphaz in his place for despising the man of the cross. And then to look one verse further and cause that same man, the man of the cross, to intercede for him, offering a sacrifice so that even those who hated him as they repent of their folly and behold the glory of the cross and the glory not just of the restored and exalted Job, but the one to whom he points, the man who would cry shrieks of anguish on the cross and enter into darkness and poverty for us because of our sin. It is those like Eliphaz who despise the message of the cross and think that it's folly as they repent of their sin and look to Christ and the glory of his cross might, like Eliphaz in chapter 42, verse 8, be lifted up and given life. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the message of the cross that is proclaimed in Job's life and even from his lips as he uh, is, is given access to the very prophetic message of the mediator to come. 
Lord, we pray that you would help us never, like Eliphaz, to reject that message in favor of a message of prosperity and glory or of piety and tradition. You would help us to see that our motive for godliness is not reward in this life. That our basis for what we believe is not human wisdom, but the wisdom and glory of the cross that is revealed in your word. And that you would help us to see that that cross also determines the shape of our lives in the fellowship of Christ's suffering as the world continues to mock him and those united to him. It would help us to see that our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly await a Savior who will transform our lowly bodies into the likeness of his glorious body. It would help us to wait eagerly with uplifted heads for Jesus' sake.